Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. This is Janice Leibovitz. You are my People of the Book, and it's great to be back with you this week. For those of you who don't know, and obviously for those of you who do, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And it is a great honor to have with me on the show today, Alison Tucker. And we're going to be chatting about breast cancer awareness, but also about her newly released book, My Best Worst Year, A Breast Cancer Story, A Personal and Authentic Account of One Woman's Experience. Alison, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Good morning, Janice. It's lovely to be here with you, too. And, I mean, I'm in a freezing cold Joburg. I think you're in Durban, right? I'm in Durban, and normally the sun is shining bright and the skies are blue, but today it's a little overcast. I I think that seems to be the case in most of the country because here in the Cape there are awful winds blowing down there. So I think we're chilly all around. But um, I think I'm I'm dressed in Johannesburg here today. I'm definitely in um, long sleeves um, and warm clothing today. Yeah, I think we all are. So we've got loads to get through So and, and limited time. So let's kick off. I'm going to kick off by heading straight to the back of the book because, um, yeah, I'm quirky that way. Your last <laughs> chapter in the book is called the, the So-Called Gift of Cancer. Wait a second. Yes, The So-Called Gift of Cancer. And I want to start off by saying that this book itself is actually a gift. In its practicality, it's down-to-earth pragmatism, and it's, it's, it's nitty-gritty directness. And I have to say to anyone who is listening, and I don't think there are many people who haven't been touched by cancer in some way, unfortunately, but I, I really do highly recommend this book for all those reasons, Alison. And I really have to, I mean, you know, obviously we wish that nobody would have to go through this, but I, I yes. thank you for putting out a book like this because – it's, it's so practical and it's so, it's direct and the lists that you provide and the advice that you give is, I think, so necessary and so helpful for anyone who's going through this and for anyone who has a friend or a family member who might be experiencing this, that I think that, that a book like this is so helpful. And I, I just have to, to thank you for, for constructing the book in the way that you've done. Thank you so much, Janice. Thank you very much indeed. I I really felt compelled to write this book because I learned so much myself through the experience of having had cancer, not only from my own personal experience in the moment, but also from the other people I was um, interacting with, other cancer patients, uh, supporters as well. You've probably noticed that the book isn't only directed at um, patients themselves, but also at the people who are supporting them. I had so many people asking me... um, for advice on how to deal with um, interacting with people that they love that, um, who had cancer at the time as well. And and you, you've put this all into the book, you know, the role that supporters can play, um, what the things that they say, um, and people yes. always want to know what they can do. And yes. I think a lot of, and, and you've said a lot of people tend to distance themselves. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They want to do something. They just don't know what that is. 
they they want yes. to to contribute in some way. They want to give a gift. They don't know what to give. You've given an extensive, beautiful list of gifts that can be given, and I think that's fantastic because. You know, I always think I want to give something, you know, to someone who's who's maybe in hospital or someone who's recuperating at home. You don't know what to give them, but you want to just show them that you care in some way by by giving them something. And and you've given this beautiful list of gifts that that are are practical and helpful and also caring. We're going to get on to a lot more of the, the, the practical side of it. First, we're going to take a quick ad break, and then we'll be back to discuss lots after this break. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I'm back, and I'm chatting to my guest, Alison Tucker, about her book, My Best Worst Year, A Breast Cancer Story. So, Alison, you became, unfortunately, one of South Africa's breast cancer cancer statistics. Let's yes. talk about those statistics. <laughs> right. <laughs> tell so us, tell us the us national stuff. cancer. Yeah, the national cancer registry um, has statistics, and when I first started looking at them to see how I stacked up within them, um, I thought that the 2018 stats were the most recent ones. But when I got so in touch with I, them, they suggested I, I use. Yeah, you also did. Yeah. Yes. But I, um, they suggested I use the 2016 ones because those, those figures were a total national sample, whereas the more recent ones were just one district, really. But when you look at the South African stats, they show quite a different picture to what you see globally. So I would um, expect that the South African stats are understated, and that's probably because more people have breast cancer without realizing it um, locally. So if you look globally, they talk about, uh, most countries refer to about one in eight women will have breast cancer in their lifetime. Wow. In South Africa, um, they talk about um, that the stats are one in 25 based on the women that are histologically diagnosed. So that's the, the diagnosis through the labs themselves. So when I was diagnosed, I was one of 9,548 South African women diagnosed that year. But in reality, they were probably even much more um, than that, that we're di- that did have breast cancer. That is and then in addition, I think it's important really to remember that, yeah, it's you know people think that breast cancer is something only associated with women, but the reality is men actually get breast cancer too. So yes, people might do. not realize. Yeah, in South Africa, uh, once again, likely to be understated, men have a lifetime risk of getting breast cancer of one in eight hundred and twenty-eight. So if you think of sitting at a at a in a stadium. In a sports stadium, and you think of how many men in that stadium, every 828 you count, one is going to end up with breast cancer, which is quite alarming when you think about it. That is, that is an astounding statistic. The other stat you might be interested in, Janice, is the age. So when you look at the age of women diagnosed, um, about 70% were in the age rank of 40 years old to, to 69 years old. Um, but you do still get sort of one to two in ten of women in the 70s that are diagnosed with breast cancer. And then, of course, women who, who are under 40 years old as well. So no one is immune to it. It really is um, a, a disease for everyone. And, and obviously there are, are different factors contributing to to why so many people do contract this. 
Um, they are obviously it's genetic. And what about the food yes. you're eating? So genetics definitely play a role. And um, for some some people, um, they have a genetic test which says that they're predisposed to it. And I think they can even get an indication of how likely they are to get it. So a lot of um, consumers probably recall um, Angelina Jolie having a, um, a double mastectomy elective because she had the genes that made her high risk. So that's that's one element. My my cancer wasn't genetic as such; it was actually hormonal. So and that's a very common one amongst um, women in in my age category. I'm now in my fifties. From a diet point of view, um, obesity is is definitely a risk, and it's also a risk um, for the reoccurrence of breast cancer after you've had it. So it's one thing I've got to really um, watch, and that's my weight, because um, you do put on weight when you're a breast cancer patient, believe me. Um, it's a, something a lot of women actually complain about and that struggle with. Right. And, and you've said, like, your breast cancer was hormonal, and, and I don't think people are aware that there were different types of, of yes. cancers. I mean, you mentioned in, in the book there's ER and PR and HER2 positive and triple negative. Yes. And I don't think people are aware of these different types of cancers. I Not think at when all. people think of breast cancer, they think, oh, it's just breast cancer, one type. But there are right. different my, variants. My, my sister had had breast cancer about, um, about 25 years ago. And at that time, I don't think we even realized there were different types. When I was diagnosed, then I suddenly realized that I was I was one of the sort of 80% of breast cancer patients that had a type called invasive ductal carcinoma. So that's where the cancer starts in the milk ducts and then breaks through into the surrounding tissue. But then you also get a lobular type of breast cancer. That's a less common one. And then within those, you still get um, uh, another layer of types, so to speak. So the hormonal one, the one I have, Mean is um, I was strongly pos- uh, positive for both estrogen and progesterone, which basically, in simplistic terms, means that the the hormones were fueling the growth of my tumor. And when you have that kind of breast cancer, after you've finished all the initial treatment, you're um, typically put onto um, uh, a hormone blocker drug, which has lots of side effects. Uh, people don't really like being on it, but it does block the hormones to try and um, ensure that it doesn't fu- hormones don't fuel any further growth. You get uh, so that's the hormonal type. Then you also get a type that's called HER2 positive. So um, people with that type wouldn't ordinarily have the post-treatment um, hormonal uh, medication for for some years, but they would have another um, type of treatment called Herceptin that they generally have for a year um, after or during the, the initial chemotherapy. Right. And then in addition to that, there's what's called triple negative which means that it's neither HER2 positive or hormonal, which means you don't have in your arsenal of treatment anything to, to treat it with. So that one's got to be watched quite carefully um, to ensure that, um, you know, if it does reoccur, they catch it very early. Wow. So thank you for that because, as I say, I don't think many people are aware of all these yeah. different types and variants of, of breast cancer. I think when they think of breast cancer, they think of, just breast cancer, and I think yes. then I'm assuming that with other cancers as well, there would be different forms and different different variants of those as well, which obviously we're not yes. going to discuss now. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's um, I think as, as science is, 
Yeah, as science is improving, I think the the treatments now are so varied um, as well. Different treatments for different types of the same location of cancer. Right. But, and, but and we're not scientists, and I'm certainly not, yeah. a, not a scientist at all. I'm just a patient. And, and you, you, you say that very clearly at the start of your book, that this is not a medical book. This is not offering medical advice. You are, uh, you are a patient. You're someone who, who has had cancer, and you are merely telling your story from your perspective and, and telling it as, as you underwent everything, as you experienced it, and you are offering advice from your perspective, purely from your perspective, and as, as you, as you perceived it. And, and you make it very clear at the start of the book that this is and your that's story, really important, your journey. Janice. Yes, that is so important, Janice, because, um, I was very fortunate to fare well through all my treatment, but I don't want, um, supporters of other patients to expect that the um, loved ones will have exactly the same experience. You know, some people have a really, really rough ride. Um, in addition, I didn't want um, people to think that if I talked about side effects on one kind of ca- um, chemotherapy I was having, I didn't want them to automatically assume they would have the same side effects or to yes. the same effect. Um, I wanted people to understand that cancer is a very individual experience. And while I may have fared well on what's called the red devil chemotherapy, yes. others they really don't fare well at all. Yes. And I'm going to um I'm going to mention that we're going to take a break now, but I want to mention that um when we come back we're going to talk about this very specific journey after the break. Okay. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And I'm chatting to Alison Tucker about her book, My Best Worst Year, A Breast Cancer Story. And as Alison makes very clear at the start of her book, this is a book about her journey. It's a very personal book about her own journey. What happened to her might not happen to others. And um, how she experienced it might not be others' experience. And she wants to make that very clear. Um, Alison, I, I want to make um, one point also. As I mentioned earlier, um, that I, I really find that this book is a gift because you're very practical about the way you experience this. And I have to say that you also mentioned in the book that you are a type A personality. <laughs> I sure <laughs> and this, am. Must, this must have helped you because, um, and I don't think everyone else has this, has, has this advantage because you were, very pragmatic and very forward thinking in your, your attitude towards your diagnosis. I mean, obviously it was a shock, but yes. you, your, your immediate, um, thought was, I'm not going to let this end my life. I'm getting on with my life. We're going to put this into perspective and we're going to put it where it belongs. And then I'm going to continue with everything else that I need to do. Yes. And, it, and that worked for you. It sure did. Um, you know, after the initial shock, uh, and it is a shock, I was in on autopilot when I got the diagnosis. And normally it doesn't happen over the telephone, but because of the time of the year it was and the fact that I was going to be leaving um, overseas on a holiday two days later, I was um, given permission to get the results over the phone. But I was in such a shock that I literally um, put the phone down and I thought, what do I do now? 
And then I realized that I had a hair appointment in 10 minutes' time. So I got dressed and I went on autopilot and went to the hairdresser. And it was only when I sat in the chair that it hit me that I actually had breast cancer. Um, and, and you were so in the perfect I, I place. You were in the perfect yeah. place to, to pour out your heart. It was, actually, because the hairdresser ended up playing quite a role in my experience, you know, because you go through the whole wig thing and then trying to grow hair afterwards. So it was quite ironic in some some respects. But I realized that I was able to take ownership of my illness. Once I was able to actually utter the words, my cancer and my oncologist, or I have cancer, because at first I couldn't say those words. So once I said them, I thought, okay, that's a good sign. Um, you know, I'm taking ownership of this, this thing now. And um, I was determined. I didn't know how I was going to face. So I, I felt a great level of anxiety. You know, I had clients. I'm a consultant, and I had clients, and I had made promises. And I was worried I wouldn't be able to carry those out, um, you know, during treatment. So I was uncertain, but I thought the best I can do is to try and get some sense of normalcy in my life to to be able to keep the wheel turning and and keep looking forward. So that was that was the start of trying to be quite pragmatic about it. But then, you know, it led into my gratitude diary, which I'm sure we'll get to speak about at an appropriate point in the interview. And, And that was a great, great help to me. And when the, the doctor was actually, when he broke, when, when your doctor broke the news to you. Yes. And, and made it sound quite routine. And it, it was like, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's breast cancer. It's not as bad as it used to be. And, um, it's like having an abscess. I mean, I'll, I'll cut horrified that <laughs> analogy. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and to, to doctors, you know, certain things are quite routine, but to patients, they never are. No, the the fortunate thing for me is that the pathologist was the um, the specialist that got permission to give me the results, and he was someone that we had known personally. So the doctor gave permission, but his own wife had had breast cancer, and she was doing well. So he had another reference point from a personal point of view, not just a medical point of view. And they, um, him and his wife, actually came around uh, to see us and to chat to us um, uh, to try and sort of reassure me somewhat. But then he was also quite uh, measured and, and level-headed. He said, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. So, um, you know, you have to be open-minded. But all is not lost because um, there are many women walking around here in South Africa today who have had breast cancer, some of them 10 years, 20 years. They're still here. They're still well. They're leading good lives. And in addition, what I didn't realize and I wanted to uh, make people realize through the book is that once you've had a diagnosis – you actually can continue to um, have a productive life and an enjoyable life as well. So it's yes, not I mean, all you, you were going on your park runs and you were, I was. I mean, you were very, <laughs> you were quite adamant on continuing to celebrate milestones. And I think that, that yes. was, for me, that was a huge thing. Um, the celebrations are very important. You have to, you know, even if it's a little thing. In fact, every, you know, people would think that um, patients might be glad if their bloods aren't good enough to have their chemo, their planned chemo administered. But the reality is you are so desperate to take another one off, to know that you're doing something about it, and to know that you're a step closer to the end of the treatment, that you literally just want to take them off and you want to celebrate every chemo. The one day um, I arrived back and I was so excited about having had another chemo, I thought I'd celebrate with a piece of cake and some um, beautiful, luxurious chocolate balls. And um, I felt a bit nauseous afterwards, but it was probably self-inflicted. 
But it's still, it's those little things, it's those little celebrations that, that, that move you forward on the journey. But, but to, but before we get there, you know, um, you talk about making the decisions about, um, surgeons and oncologists and you, you were lucky in having guidance from friends who had prior knowledge. What about people who don't have that guidance? How do you go about choosing? Yes. You know, so in my case, I had a, yeah, I had a really good friend whose husband was um, terminal with cancer at the time I was diagnosed. And um, it was a real gift of love from her because she literally took charge of that side for me. And I, I went off on my holiday, came back earlier to have my first um, oncologist and surgeon appointment and tasked her with choosing for me. Um, what what did happen is it happened to be a practice that was just around the, the corner from where I live. And it all fell into place because I loved the oncologist. I, I just love the practice, all of them. And it worked for me. But another benefit that at the time I didn't realize was the fact that when you go for radiation, it's a daily occurrence. And although it only takes a few minutes, by that stage you're very fatigued. So just to drive around the corner and have it done is far better than negotiating traffic and driving you know, across suburbs. So for me, location is a key thing. And then just speaking to other people. Um, who have had cancer. One thing that struck me is when you when you buy a new car, you suddenly think that everyone has that car because you start noticing it on the road yes. and you would never have noticed it before. When you get cancer, suddenly you realize that everyone around you has either had cancer or knows someone who has had cancer. Absolutely so, true. Yeah, so, so choosing, choosing um, your medical team uh, is best done by talking, talking to people around you and also realizing that one un- – Oncologist's manner may not be maybe right for one patient, but not another. So I wanted um, an oncologist who would be um, quite um, open and um, and frank with me. And it just turned out that it was a lady who's beautifully open and frank, but um, also very kind and um, and and an amazing woman. So that really worked for me. Other people prefer um, oncologists who who will be um, less direct. And, you know, maybe let just a little snippet of information out at a time so as not to overwhelm as well. Yeah. And you you spoke about the importance of um, all the staff at, at the, the chemotherapy yes. practice because they all play a role. Yes. And, in fact, you will interact with the – if you're having chemotherapy, the chemotherapy nurses will be a big part of your life. Uh, I, I have to go and fetch my, my meds on a monthly basis now. And a lot of people never want to set foot in an oncology center again, but I love going there because I just love seeing them all. They really are an amazing bunch of, um, of, of, of people and of women and, and men as well. You know, there's the pharmacists, there's the, the, the people who are mixing the, the drugs who are wearing these sort of space-like suits. Yeah. Um, there's them. There's the, the reception staff who are very important because you're interacting with them, making your appointments all the time. But the chemo nurses in particular are the ones who you're spending hours with you know, each time you go there and you get to know them and as individuals. So when I got to the end, I actually thought, oh, I'm going to miss these people. So I did, you know, I made sure that I um, chose some gifts for all of them to give to them um, at the end of my treatment um, as a little a little thank you. Because you described chemo and I don't think I've ever heard someone describe chemotherapy like this. You describe it as fabulous and fun. <laughs> that was quite <laughs> unique, Alison. Yeah, I, look, I'm sure it's not that for everyone, 
But I, um, I had a, a very close friend of mine, uh, Michelle, who I call Shelly, who came to every single one of my 16 chemotherapies with me. And every time she would bring me a toasted sandwich, um, a, a chicken and mayonnaise toasted sandwich, and a cappuccino. And as my taste buds started um, going, as they do on chemo, she would add more jalapeno peppers on them. And we'd have a little laugh about that. But we'd sit there, and it was it was quite a positive, uplifting place. The other patients who were there were always very friendly. Everyone shared their stories and their tips. On the odd occasion, when you would get someone who who was a little negative, um, they'd very soon realize that there wasn't a place for negativity in the room. And and we used to joke and have fun, and there were always other visitors popping in. I feel quite sorry for patients at the moment who, due to COVID, um, can't have anyone with them in their ke- while they're having their chemotherapy. Yeah. So it would be a much more lonely experience. Yeah, but did, in did our you, case, it felt gave, almost like a little mini party. Yeah, you included some beautiful stories about the the people who you met in yes. in in chemo and the, the the people who who you shared that with, and you you've given um. You know, you, you've mentioned your, your own chemo protocol and you've given a, a really great list of what you suggest people need to take with them to chemo. And you've also given a list of what your side effects were to chemo. And also, yes. um, you've offered tips for wig wearers for, for wearing a wig as well, <laughs> which I think is, is amazingly helpful. Hair was a big one for me, Janice. I had had the same hairstyle for virtually 50 years, and my hair was long and blonde and uh, wavy. I had I had blonde hair my entire life. Um, so when I when I decided to head off to the well, my friend hauled me off to the wig place as soon as I knew I had to have chemo, which was a, a blessing because that's the time you do need to go. While they can look at the texture and the colour of your hair, they normally snip a little piece off. And it also takes time to sometimes order a wig close to your own hairstyle, which close as they can get, um, sometimes from overseas. So you want that wig to be ready when your hair falls out. And it, once you've had that first chemo, there's no going back. It will fall out for this if, for the type of cancer, uh, chemo you're having on, on breast cancer. So um, I started off being petrified of wearing wigs, and I ended up embracing it and absolutely loving it. So a friend of mine in Australia who had had breast cancer sent me a parcel when it first arrived, there were pink wigs and platinum wigs, and I looked at the stuff, and I thought, there's no way I'm ever going to wear this stuff. Anyway, suffice to say, I then get, they all had names, and I would change my identity every day, depending on what my mood was. And my, my, my man, Michael, um, must have felt like he was having an affair with a whole lot of different women, because every day I looked different. Um, and then um, eventually, uh, you know, once you get to the end, you get through that battle of trying to grow your hair back. And in my case, my hair's grown back brown. So I'm now a brunette, complete brunette, and my hair's very different to before. So it took a while to assimilate the new identity. I used to look in the mirror and think, that's not me. But my, my friends tell me that I actually look younger, so they, they think that cancer did me some good. And you, you wear your hair short now, don't you? You're not long anymore. Yes. I have no idea what I'm actually going to do with it. At the moment, it's a bit of trial and error still. Um, but yes, it is short. It took quite a long time to grow. Started off as this very sort of soft, downy fluff on my head. And then I got the distinct, what they call chemo curls, where they're very tight curls. And I kept on going to the hairdresser for her to snip, um, you know, the, the ends off. And now it's slightly, it's, it's, it's still sort of curly, but not, it's, it's much less curly than it, than it was before. 
So very different um, to what it was. Okay. Just for info, another tip I give um, wig wearers is when you choose a wig, you're so obsessed with the hair you're going to lose in your head, you forget that you're going to lose your eyebrows and your eyelashes. And that is um, almost more freaky than losing the hair in your head. Right. So if you wear a fringe, it's better to choose a fringe that's slightly longer, so it's a little more forgiving when you when you um, when you you lose your hair and and you've lost your eyebrows. That is a great tip. And as opposed to chemotherapy, your radiotherapy um, experience, I know you've included a very, very long list, an extensive list of things that would have enhanced your experience with, with radiotherapy. Yes. I, you know, Janice, I can't say that um, the experience I had with radiotherapy was the same as what other patients have had. It might vary from practice to practice. It might, uh, yeah, so I'm not sure, but, but for me, it was a less human process than the chemotherapy. So, you know, it's very tightly scheduled that like your appointment could be at like 12.03 and you feel a bit like a, you know, a, a factory where people are just being processed, pushed through this machine. Um, and the, the staff that are handing you are, um, are very focused on getting you in the right position and then getting out the room and then you're on the, your own and you hear the buzzing and the whirs of the machine. But for me, um, yeah, I, I included the tips in the hope that if any uh, radiology practices read it, they might just consider some of those things that might um, lighten up the experience for, for patients. Right. Right. And then, um, yeah, because you said it was a lot, yeah, like you said, it's a lot less human, a lot less personal yes. because it's so quick. You know, yes. because you're only there for and a few minutes at a time. Yeah, what all, what also does happen is um, the different points of view on things like whether you should get water on your skin or not. Um, so it's, it's quite a difficult space to navigate. Um, once again, I was fortunate in that my – at first I thought, I hope this is working because I'd go there, lie there, get up, and nothing was happening. But um, as it progressed, eventually uh, my skin started getting, you know, looking like it was very burnt. Uh, and it never broke through completely into blisters or anything, but it was very, very red and tender um, uh, to the touch, yeah. And I know a lot of people do talk about that chronic exhaustion that comes with it as well. Yes, yes. So at that stage, you also just want to get to the end of the treatment. It feels like it's never going to end. Um, so you, you're desperate. And it, feel, it just feels very onerous, those daily sessions. Yeah. Um, so you had your year. Tell me about what a lot of people don't think about, and you do mention that in the book, that people don't think about it. Tell me about the aftermath afterwards. You've got through it. You've finished your chemo. You've finished your, your radiotherapy. And then it's all done. And it's after. What happens then? And Janice, that's when the real grit starts because you, you're so focused on getting to the end of your treatment protocol and you think that that's where cancer stops. Um, the people around you also think that, well, now you've been declared NED or no evidence of disease and you're over cancer and you expect it to just continue as before. But in many respects, you're not the same person. In addition, you're now on drugs. In my case, I'm on the hormone blockers, so there are all kinds of side effects like very sore joints and, and weight gain, etc. that you've got to deal with. Um, 
They say that most um, cancer patients lose weight with the exception of breast cancer patients. So generally, breast cancer patients have put on some weight during the treatment and they've got to get rid of that weight afterwards. Do you don't feel good about yourself? You're not propped up with the steroids that you may have been getting during your chemo as before. You're chronically fatigued. You you can't exercise as well as you may have exercised um, before having got cancer. Um, so in some cases, people have um, damage. You know, there might maybe some heart issues from from the chemotherapy. And then there's this whole physical thing of your new identity, so your new hair, trying to grow hair. Um, trying to sort out your fingernails and your toenails, people may not know that some chemotherapies like Paclitaxel or Taxel really um, does your nails in. So it took me a long time to try and um, feel like I was able to put my hands in front of people because my nails were so damaged. Um, and also I'm going to have up, to interrupt you. I'm going to have to interrupt you because you need to take a break. We're going to okay. get back to this now, and we're cool. also going to talk about guilt. Survivor yes. guilt. And when we get back. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I am chatting to my guest, Alison Tucker, and we are talking about her book, My Best Worst Year, A Breast Cancer Story, with October being Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And before the break, we were talking about the aftermath of breast cancer. Something that many people don't think about, as Alison was saying, you think about getting through your chemo, getting through your radiotherapy. You don't really think about what happens when that's all done. And Alison was describing all those after effects and having to get used to a new you and you after all your treatments and the guilt that comes with surviving your condition when you know that others have not, unfortunately, survived. Yes, um, that is so true, Janice. While I was going through my experience, I had um, some friends who used to live in South Africa but live overseas now who was so incredibly kind um, to me. And it so happened that uh, my friend um, was diagnosed with brain cancer um, towards the end of my experience. And her, her prognosis is not good at all. But I feel so terribly guilty that I'm still here on this earth and that I had a reasonably easy experience. Every time I hear of um, someone not faring as well as I did or someone who is um, unlikely to survive cancer, I feel this guilt. And at first I battled with it, but then I realized that it's the, there is this thing called survivor's guilt, and it is very common. So um, that makes it a little bit easier to, to, to cope with. And it's, it is a very real thing, even though people don't – many people don't understand it, but it is a very real yes. thing. And, yes. and it's, it's quite a, it's a concrete, um, it's a, it's really a, a concrete condition, really. Yes. You, you have something which I would call chronic Googling. Um, you Google everything. <laughs> they tell <laughs> you not to, to Google, do that. Which but, could but be a good thing just, or a yeah, bad thing. Yeah, you, you just regarded being told not to Google everything. You Googled everything. But one thing you also Googled was the word kvetch, which anyone listening, because yes. we are a Jewish radio station, Anyone yes. listening probably knows what Kvetch is. You didn't know what Kvetch was. Um, I didn't and there was something called the Kvetching Order. Yes, and Ring Theory by um, Susan Silk and Barry Goldman. Um, and this, this I've often shared with people um, who are supporting other patients, and they're all 
um, found it quite useful. So how it works is you draw um, concentric circles. So you start with a little circle in the middle and you put the patient or the cancer sufferer in there. You then draw circles around it and more and more circles. And you place people in those circles depending on their sort of proximity, emotional um, proximity to that person. So my the next circle around me may be my partner and my mother. And so you move out until you get your sort of, you know, um, associates or friends of friends. And the theory is, this convention order, is that you comfort in and you dump out. So you've got to know your place in the circle. So if you're in a, in a, a circle, you would never um, dump on the person that's in a smaller circle closer to the, the inner circle of the patient than you are. You would always provide comfort. So you wouldn't say to someone's husband, oh, I'm so stressed out about your wife's breast cancer and oh, you know, it's making me not sleep at night. You would rather provide a source of comfort to them. But it would be fine to dump out in the, the, the greater circle, the bigger circle. Um, so that, that's really what the convention order is. Brilliant. I love that concept. You, you dump out peripherally yes. <laughs> inwards. Brilliant concept. Love it. I'd never heard of that before. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Love it. But, but also you needed to learn the, the, you needed to learn about being able to ask for help. Um, and you know, that it was okay to ask for help. And I know many people, people who, who don't have a, a medical condition find that extremely difficult. And, and you also spoke about the many different organizations that are available that, that offer different types of help. Yes. Um, there are heaps of uh, breast cancer support organizations. I probably just want to mention two that I found really, really useful um, at this point. The one is an online group that's called Cancer Babes of South Africa. And it was started by a young woman who had um, serious cancer, but it is the most amazing um, support place. So it's literally all women who have any kind of cancer, although many have had breast cancer because it's the most common cancer amongst women. And it's just a warm, supportive place where you can post a question, where you can ask for help. Uh, you know, there have been cases where just recently um, a lovely lady posted the fact that she, has, she had lost her job, her husband had lost his job, she was having to go for a treatment, she didn't have money for transport. All the women just rallied around and started sending her food vouchers and e-wallets to try and help her. I did. I Amazing. actually sent her a copy of the book, which she was so grateful for. She actually phoned me since we've had a few conversations. So there's that support group. Also a lot of emotional support from that. And then there's another example I wanted to mention. There's an organization which is um, uh, a charity organization called Look Good, Feel Better. And I wish more patients with cancer would know about this. Because it was certainly something that I um, was very grateful for. They, what happens is you book onto a workshop, and it's a, I think it was a two or three hour workshop, and um, there's someone who talks you through things like how to draw your eyebrows, how to wear turbans, how to deal with the the physical impact of cancer, like the dry skin. It's not a place for medical advice. They make that very very clear. It's more about beauty beauty issues. Although it's, it's for both men and women as well. And that was the first place I was at where I actually took my wig off my head and bared my wig, my my, um, my bare head. I took it and put it in the windowsill next to me so that I could focus on um, what we were doing. Each person had a little mirror and a little station in front of them and a bag of products which they got to take home. And the the lady running the, the workshop would 
um, instruct us and help us. And we would actually do our own faces and draw our own eyebrows and everything. So that's um, they've got a website people can go in onto to look for um, for one close to them. Um, and I think the website is www. I've, got it, I've actually got it. You got it. Yeah, oh, brilliant. Because you just sent it to me, and I will put it okay. on on the um, on my Facebook page, um, www.lgfb.co.za. That's South African website. It is a global organisation, though. That's right. This yes, is just specifically the South African yes. site, yes. and I, I found this amazing that there are organisations that are doing stuff like this, and just so unaware of them. Yes, and then I came home with a bag full of um, products, skincare products and makeup products. Um, so at the time, you're feeling really grotty. It's quite nice to experiment. And and some of the products that were in that bag, I actually um, changed and I started using them on an ongoing basis as well. So the spon- whoever the sponsors were of all those products, they actually got some mileage out of it too. I think that's absolutely amazing. We are going to take one last break, and then we'll be back with a wrap-up. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I'm back with my guest, Alison Tucker, chatting about her book, My Best Worst Year, a breast cancer story, with um, October being Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And we are quickly running out of time, unfortunately, because we've been having a really, really informative conversation about cancer and lots of practical advice coming from Alison and I really highly recommend her book. Alison, where is the book available? So the book is available online um, as an ebook book um, for Kindles um, globally, and then also all good bookstores here in South Africa. So, you know, the likes of exclusive books, um, etc. It's on shelf in the biography so, section. So it is readily available in stores now. One thing people, yes. I think, panic about when they, they hear a diagnosis like this is the cost and, and, you know, medical aid, medical insurance, you know, um, we don't have a lot of time left, but tell us briefly, like, you know, what did this entail? Yes. So my, I had uh, medical insurance, very grateful to have had that. And for my treatment for the year, it, it was essentially a year of treatment. Treatment. I literally came in um, within my oncology benefits, so I didn't have to pay anything out for treatment as such. I also did have gap cover, but I didn't um, have to use that. But um, all up, it's um, you're talking about, um, you know, surgery and the treatment. You're talking about, you know, it's sort of two, three hundred thousand rand. So it's not an insignificant amount. And unfortunately, people in the public health um, care sector. Um, certain waiting queues and, and often their treatment is compromised because they don't have access to the medical insurance that I right. had. Sure. So this is something that, I mean, is this something that the people, you know, obviously insurance is, what do they say? It's the, the one thing that you buy and you hope you never need. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. I actually, in, I increased my policy. I changed the, uh, and higher policy that doubled my oncology benefit and I moved my gap cover to the same company I had my medical insurance with so that it's more seamless and integrated now. Just knowing that I have um, you know I have a higher risk level now for a reoccurrence. And were you were you able to increase that oncology benefit yes. while you were having treatment? Um, no. I in, you get one opportunity a year. And um, so I increased mine 
um, just before the deadline at the end of the year that I'd finished treatment, I was able to increase it. Um, I must be honest, I don't know whether I would have been able to change it um, while I was having treatment. I'm not sure of that. But this is obviously something that people need to consider when they are looking yes. at their, their medical benefits and when they're and looking at medical profile. aid and, and risk profiles. Yes. And That's right. obviously they need to um, look at genetic histories, things like that, when they are are looking at, at buying medical aid, medical insurance. Yes. Do you think that's something that needs to be considered? Yes, the, the, the genetic testing, I know, is not something that um, everyone, they wouldn't just do it as a matter of course. I think they would look at family histories and things before they actually do genetic testing. Um, so if they think that you may have a predisposition, then they would probably carry it out. But it's not something that's done just as a standard screening. I realize that. I think it's something that um, I know a lot of people, unfortunately, when something drastic happens medically, that's when they realize they don't have the cover they need. That's right. Whereas it's generally something you just can't afford yeah. not to have. Yes. And I think many of us are quite ill-informed, um, excuse the pun, um, when, it, when it comes to advice on medical aids, medical cover, medical insurance, gap cover, things like that. Yes. I think these things are constructed um, according to, to what the people constructing them understand, not what the layperson understands most of the time. That's right. A quick tip for people is, you know, when you're going through treatment, little things feel big and you do get a state of confusion so it's good to keep a spreadsheet and to literally record every blood test, every medical appointment so that when your bills come in you can reconcile and if there are any queries it's so much easier to get them sorted out. I still I learned that during my um, cancer treatment and I still keep that spreadsheet going today to help me control the admin. Right. Alison, unfortunately we are going to have to wrap this up now. Oh, yes. That was my timer going off here. Um, <laughs> um, as I said, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month and highly recommending ladies go and get tested. That's my doorbell. Um, get tested and please God, your results are all good. Alison, it has been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Janice, and thank you, too, to the Union of Jewish Women for having hosted a, a, a book launch um, event in East London for me while I was down there recently. Oh, wow, amazing. That they got fantastic. hold of me spontaneously and um, and held a book launch, um, hosted a book launch for me, which was wonderful. Oh, that is fantastic. So I've been chatting to Alison Tucker about my best, worst year of breast cancer story. We're going to leave it right there. Alison, have a wonderful day. And to you Thank listening, you. to you listening, I wish you a wonderful Shabbat. Um, Chag Samer, have a lovely Sukkot. I hope the weather is good and um, holds out wherever you are so you can sit in your sukkah and have a wonderful week. Happy reading. We'll chat again next week.